0: I was
1: born in Belfast, between the mountains and the gantries, to the hooting of lost sirens and the clang of trams. Thence to smoky Carrick and County Antrim, where the bottleneck harbour collects the mud, which jams the little boats beneath the Norman castle, the pier shining with lumps of crystal salt. The Scotch Quarter was a line of residential houses, but the Irish Quarter was a slum for the blind and halt. The brook ran yellow from the factory, stinking of chlorine. The yarn mill called its funeral cry at noon. Our lights looked over the loch to the lights of Bangor under the peacock aura of a drowning moon.
2: Belfast... Melfastia, the mouth of the sandbank. They came and cleared the woods and drained the fields and from the rich earth came oats and barley for the body and flax for the mills and on the deep waters they built ships and their great city grew with them. In the latter part of the 18th century, Belfast was a small town, second in Ulster to Armagh. Above all, a city where the spirit of revolutionary and brotherly love were manifest. Writing in 1792, Tone said, The people of Belfast were not idle on their part. They spared neither
3: pains nor expense to propagate the new doctrine of the Union of Irishmen through the whole north of Ireland, and they had the satisfaction to see their proselytes rapidly extending in all directions. In order more effectually to spread their principles, twelve of the most active and intelligent among them subscribed £250 each, in order to set on foot a paper whose object should be to give fair statement of all that passed in France, whither everyone turned their eyes, to inculcate the necessity of union amongst Irishmen of all religious persuasions, to support the emancipation of the Catholics, and
2: finally, to erect Ireland into a republic independent of England. But early in the 19th century, the famine came, and thousands of starving labourers flocked to the edges of the city, Protestant and Catholic, to the areas known today as Sandy Row and Falls. Each political change of status quo in Ireland had a reflex reaction on life in Belfast, usually for the worst. By the early part of this century, Belfast was a vast industrial city, overshadowed by huge mills and cranes, churches rising to God and factories to mammon. Belfast actor J.G. Devlin recalls how his grandmother and mother worked in the mills through the years of the 20s and 30s, when the chances of starvation or survival were a toss of a coin, a flip of a farthing.
4: Well, for those who worked, and they were uh, very much uh, in the minority, for those who worked, the wages were bad, the conditions were atrocious, and one could nearly say that it was the women. My mother was a mill worker, you see. She worked in the in the reeling room and my sister was a a mill worker and they were almost the breadwinners both Shankill and Falls, Sandy Road, Newtonards Road and around that area. The working class people were, I would say it was mostly the women who worked in the linen mills. There was more, there were more work in the linen mills for women than there would have been for men. And then there was also the wear you know, making hankies and that sort of thing. That was all women's work. So, an actual fact, uh, the economy of the normal working-class household in those days was placed firmly on the shoulders of the women.
2: Working conditions which were so deplorable that in 1932 they exploded into the outdoor relief riots. Yes, I remember
4: that this was a period in history where the Catholic and the Protestant had come together. One could almost say... For the first time since this is the Catholic and Protestant working class had um, come together for the first time, I would say, from 1798, and uh, I can recollect distinctly that uh, when the police moved in on the ODR rioters on the Falls Road, the Falls Road uh, rioters were ably assisted by men from the Shankill and even men from Sandy Row who come up to help them because they both had a common cause and the common cause was this they were paid 12 shillings which meant they had to work for three days concreting the streets of Belfast so when you go around um, these concrete streets in your motor car you'll know that it was the ODR workers Protestant and Catholic who built those for a pittance there were slaves one had to take this if you didn't take it then there was no so you had no source of income at all and as a matter of fact during that particular time the uh, poor odr workers their case was always put to, to the board of guardians the poor law guardians and on one particular occasion of course which is, was a historical moment for all in sundry and belfast was when Harry Diamond, who was the late MP for Falls, lifted the mat and fired it at the the chairman of the Board of Guardians, because the man was asleep. Now at that precise moment, outside the poorhouse, uh, that's the union worker, now the city hospital, it was called the workhouse in those days, and by a lot of the old residents, it's still called the poorhouse even though it's one of the finest hospitals in Europe at the moment, um, there were people outside the gates of the, of the workhouse trying to get in appealing for to be let in so that they would get some food. You know, they put themselves in as vagrants, anything. And these poor people were outside. And during this meeting, which was to debate their case, the chairman of the Board of guardians was fast asleep, and this is when Harry made his famous gesture of protest by lifting a big sort of rubber mat or whatever it was and throwing it at
0: him. Oh, dear me, the mill's going fast. The poor of we shifters can't get. shaft in pieces a warp, wept and twine They fairly make you work for your ten and nine
4: I would say the Belfast people, despite what's happening, this sad and sordid thing that's happening at the present time, is a, they're a very generous people. Now I would love to illustrate this with a with a little uh, story that happened to a friend of mine who's now dead, and his name, incidentally, was Jamesy e. McGurk. And Jamesy e. was a member of the Unemployed Workers Association. Now he had to work on the streets, uh, doing this twelve shilling thing, you know, he had to work his three days before he got this this dole. And he was working in Memel Street, which is a very well-known orange stronghold in East Belfast. And he, they were using these big heavy boards to flatten the concrete down. And it was on a Monday morning and Jamesy collapsed. And uh, there was a bit of a alarm among the, his work, his workmates. But they, some old woman who was living somewhere along the street said, bring him in here. So they carried him in, and they sent for the ambulance, or a doctor, or some, some somebody to do something for him. And during the time he was in the house, the old woman had a pot of soup on. Now that was always the famous, the, the best soup was always the soup that was made for Sunday, and what was left over for Monday. always they used to say was that it was better than it was on Sunday. And when the doctor came in, this old woman was feeding Jamesy with soup. And Jamesy opened his eyes. And on one wall he could see King William III crossing the Boyne. And on the other wall he could see the old Dowager picture, the cheap print of Queen Victoria. And the doctor he remembered this he told me this very thing the doctor then said what have you done for him and she said this man doesn't need a doctor it's food he wants i knew what was wrong the man is the man is starving
0: oh dear me the world's all divided them that work the hardest are the least provided. Shift and piece and spinning, now warp, weft and twine, for there's no much pleasure living up in ten and
2: nine. Andrew Boyd, trade unionist and author of, among many books, Holy War in Belfast, has lived, studied, and fought alongside the Belfast working class.
5: Well, I think that, of course, the first thing that one says about the working class of Belfast is this that they have suffered. In many, many ways, for generations, for example, it would be hard to say that their standard of living is very high compared, shall we say, with the people who live in London or in other parts of uh, Britain. Uh, They certainly have lived longer in the Industrial Revolution so far as uh, housing conditions and social conditions are concerned than most other people. If you take, for example, the... Ballymacarrett district, which used to be called Little Belfast. If you wandered through Ballymacarrett you're really wandering through the 19th century. Go along the Newtonards Road and see the shipyards and see all the back to back houses. And um, this was Belfast in the 19th century. If you walk along the Shankill Road or the Falls Road, you're in the same um, kind of atmosphere, working class houses that were built then. And I think another thing about Belfast working people is this, that they have been deprived... The people have been deprived of greenery within their city. In fact, I think it's one of the most congested cities in these islands. There's no Phoenix Park, there's no Stephens Green, there are no places like that where people can... uh, It was built in a hurry, of course, wasn't it? it? Of course it was built in a hurry. Mushroomed? It mushroomed. It grew rapidly from 1800, and particularly after
2: 1830, when industrialisation developed in Belfast. Perhaps one of the first windows opened on the world of working-class Belfast, and especially the shipyards, was by one of its own shop stewards, Sam Thompson, in his famous play Over the Bridge. Andrew Boyd, who was a school friend of his and a friend in later life, recalls him.
5: Ah, He was a pleasant man, a very... uh, He was a very easy man to get on with, so far as I can remember. He was a serious man... Uh, when before he attained prominence as a playwright, he was a very serious kind of chap, serious in his attitude to the working class movement, to socialism. I think he was a very sincere man. I mean, he he was uh, genuinely concerned about the um, Catholic-Protestant conflict in Belfast, and particularly about how he saw it in the Belfast shipyards. And you know that Over the Bridge does portray that very, very, very truly.
3: Type all right. They crawl around the boats and through the workshops, fanning the flames of bigotry with our plausible double meaning talk. And it's the same no matter where you go in this country. Nobody can pin anything on them, not even the authorities. You know why, boss? Because nobody wants to know where the actions of a mob begins, or where it ends for that matter, until there's a tragedy. Then it's too late. You can nail nothing on anybody without proof, Robbie. That's the law. I know, boss, I know. It's the easiest thing in the world for any man to stand face to face with his own workmate and advise him to get out for his own good when he knows in his heart that he's already dug his grave for him. Doesn't that make it all the more frightening? Who are your friends?
6: Why did they do it, Mr. Fox? My father never harmed anyone.
3: I don't know, Miss Mitchell, I really don't know. I've been in charge of men now for over 30 years, and at times I thought I knew them, but nobody ever does. 30 years ago, I thought I knew your father and branded him as a troublemaker. But I learned a great lesson the other day, Miss Mitchell. I saw the wheels of trade unionism deprive a man of his livelihood because he wanted to leave on religious grounds... And I witnessed the very same day the loyalty of your father, who stood by a workmate and defending his right to work without intimidation.
6: What you saw for the first time, Mr. Fox, I was privileged to see all my life. I was only ten years old when you kept my father out of a job for over a year, when you had plenty of work. One day, I walked into this kitchen and found my father kneeling by a chair sobbing his heart out. A man has very strong principles, Mr. Fox, when he'll do that to keep them.
3: You have every reason not to like me, Miss Mitchell. But I was brought up in a rough school, and I had to be tough when I was made head foreman. I have no need to worry about trade unions or shop stewards, for when I went out the gate in the mornings to start men, my power was complete. I could see it in the men's faces. Then you had only ten jobs to spread over a couple of hundred men, and they heaved and pushed each other to catch my eye, hoping it was their lucky day.
6: I saw the same hope in the faces of their wives when I was a little girl going to school. We watched Fraser Street Bridge every morning and waited to see if our daddies would be among the lucky ones. But if they all came together, then we knew they still hadn't a job. When your daddy wasn't among them, you danced with joy. And your mother was happy, too. It meant he had a job again. I watched that group of men getting smaller and smaller. Until one morning, only one man came over the bridge. And that man was my daddy. He would take me by the hand and lead me to school, never speaking a word the whole way. And my schoolmates would taunt me, saying my daddy would never get a job, and that he was a troublemaker, and would never work in the shipyard again. Then one day, I would come home from school and see that horrible suitcase all packed. And I knew he was leaving to go to England. I stayed with Martha next door, and every night I cried myself to sleep until one morning I would come downstairs and there he would be, standing, waiting to surprise me. Your power was complete, Mr Fox, but so was the sorrow of men like my father. In
2: 1969, Brian Moore author of, among many books, The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn, The Emperor of Ice Cream, and A Moment of Love, came back to Belfast for the first time in 20 years and remembered... The Glorious Twelfth. It came during school holidays, but we
3: weren't allowed out. Unlike other Catholic children, we didn't mind being kept in on that day, for we had the rare distinction of being the only papishes in the world... With a grandstand viewing position, right across from the balcony where Sir Joseph Davidson, Grand Panjandrum of the Orange Order, watched the men set out on their march to Finicky Field. The glorious 12th. There was something heartrending and grand and wild and real about it. They started assembling at seven in the morning, coming in on lorries and bicycles from villages around the city, walking the darkened streets from Ballymacarrot and Queen's Island, from York Street and the Mills, taking the early trams across the city, quiet now and sober in their dark blue Sunday suits, wearing big grey tweed caps or black Masonic bowler hats, and tied across their chests the broad silk orange sashes their fathers wore before them, some with silk Masonic ceremonial aprons, with stiff cuffs, white gloves, many uniformed bands, a tiger skin for the drum major, bagpipes and flutes and snare drums and clarinets and cornets and big slide trombones, massing in the side streets like the mobs of Paris, smoking and spitting, talking in low morning voices. 10 a.m. By God, it put blood on a person's bones to see them skirl out of their meeting point, playing snatches of bagpipes and brasses. I still weep with impossible emotion when I hear a pipe band. And now they're coming up Clifton Street, like guns. the street wet with rain they ignore. The showers pelting down on their best blue Sunday suits and on their elaborate many coloured silk lodge banners, carried with many trailing guide ropes and ornate streamers. And now, as they assemble at the parade in Carlisle Circus, the rotunda at the top of our street, it is no music at all, just row on row of silent men between these bright silken banners. The band's silent. A few cars growling in among the marchers, stuffed with dignitaries and men too old for the walk. Each lodge and chapter waiting in a side street to join the main river. And now they are formed and begin to come, stepping out with a left, 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 right, left. And the drum beat to keep step. Barump, 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 bump, bump. And as they march out of Carlisle Circus and start down Clifton Street, going in the direction of St. Patrick's Catholic Church, its gates locked, doors barred, the only day of the year the church is shut. The marchers raise their eyes up in the drizzling Irish rain and there he is, statue still on his stone-grey charger, standing on that graven date of 1690, with his fagging sword raised above his head to clout the fagging Fenian gits. King Billy Begod. And as the loyal Protestants crowd, lining the streets, waving penny union jacks, sees the drummer's blood, sees the blood spilt for England, that true blue blood, and the Catholics, sitting sullen and afraid behind their shut doors, hear that Pagan din. Three drummers abreast in rows of three. long lamb-beg drums in each thunderous phalanx. And now the drummers, exhausted, let their bleeding arms hang loose. And that's the signal to break out the pipe bands. Joyous and triumphant music with a good orange tune. And we moor children watch from our windows, knowing the words of that tune, and the marching men know it too. But it's early morning, and they march silent, not singing. But there's always some poor woman with drink taken, waving a penny union jack from the sidelines and wanting to act up and let a yell out of her and show her knickers to the marching men, and she will sing the words and the marchers will hear her and they will wink at each other and smile. Do you think that we will let a dirty fenian get bespoil the royal orange lily old? <laughs> will not. Soon they will arrive at Finicky Field just outside the city, a staging ground for violence. They will have a terrible thirst on them from the march, and black pints of porter will be poured, and bottles of Guinness's stout, and whiskey for those who have the price of it. And with their ties off and collars loosened, they will hear the big men of the Orange Order and of the Unionist Party blame unemployment for the rising Catholic birth rate, warning against the nationalists who would sever us from Britain. And where would we be without the jobs and benefits that Britain provides us with, lads? And now, three cheers for the royal family and hip-hip for the Orange Order and hooray for the party in power! And then, drunk, they will disperse in mid-afternoon to walk back with their bands and their drums, back to their mean houses and the unemployment assistance which is what most of them will live on year in and year out in this Irish corner which has always been the most oppressed area of the British Isles. And so, as they start off home, knowing the big day is ending and it is drab do-nothingsville for Gaul the other days of the year, they will up and beat the lights and livers out of any Catholics they can lay their hands on and they will find them For the Catholics, resentful and bored, have sat all day in sullen hate and now are looking for a fight. And these are riots. The same riots we have now. The same old, awful mess.
0: Gravel, green gravel, your grass is so green You are the fairest young damsel I ever have seen I washed her, I dressed her, I clothed her in silk And I wrote down her name with a glass pen and ink. Gravel, green gravel, your true love is dead, and I send you a letter to turn back your head.
2: The guns and the drums, and always lurking in the background, there is another world, the world of Belfast, the world of a child. Where do they meet? George Campbell, the artist, has recently completed a series of paintings detailing the German Blitz of World War II right through to the more recent blitz. One of the most poignant of these is called the Burnt Out Sweetie Shop.
7: Well, the Sweetie Shop was just burnt out, of course, but uh, but the Sweetie Shop was something that must have existed in your mind all those years as well as mine. Who didn't, who lived in the North, spend any penny, tuppence or threepence or whatever he could afford on Cayley Suckers and you know Edinburgh Gundy and gubstoppers? And, I mean, the Sweetie Shop was, at that time, the, the great centre for, for of childhood, wasn't it? Or... or, or, or or adolescents, even if you like, nowadays it would be the drugstore, the, the cafe, but those were very simple years. Mm. you know the problems were simpler problems, weren't they? If you had tubpence well you you know you didn't think of fags particularly, you thought of Gubstoppers stoppers or jelly babies or some Kayley suckers and uh, uh, of course, I uh, so that this has a lasting effect on me because I remember the 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 great thrill you know out of being given tubpence and going to a little sweetie shop and the smells of the sweetie shop, the colours of it, the little old lady in behind the counter, I can remember her name right to this day, McMullen. you know. But, I mean, when you suddenly go back and see a sweetie shop such as that, just burned out, empty, this old blind eye staring back at me, no response whatsoever. Just uh, one big tragic
2: semicolon in the, in, the, in the course of
7: northern history, you know.
2: Another painter who spent her childhood in Belfast was Noreen Rice. For
0: well, all my
3: travels around the world, I've never forgotten little rhymes like My Aunt Jane, she called me in, gave me tea out of her wee tin, half a butt and sugar on the top, and three black lumps out of her wee shop. <laughs> my Aunt
0: Jane, she took me in, she gave me tea out of her wee tin, half a and a wee snow top, three black lumps out of her wee shop.
2: died. In the 1848 riots a four-year-old girl and an eight-year-old boy died. In the riots of 1923 a six-month old child was drowned. And in the Scarman Report of 1972 it condemned the use of Browning machine guns in Belfast on August 14th and 15th. The weapon was a menace to the innocent as well as the guilty, being heavy and indiscriminate in its fire and on one occasion the firing into St. Brendan's block of flats where the seven-year-old Patrick Rooney was sheltering and was killed was wholly unjustifiable.
0: There were two sisters going to school All round the Loneo They spied a lady at a pool Down by the Greenwood side So a lady sitting there all round the lonely and at her baby she did stare down by the green wood side o. She had the baby on her knee all day. And the cruel penknife they could see down by the green wood side. Oh she held the baby to her heart all round the lonely o and said, Dear baby, we'll both must part. Down by the green wood side She held the baby to her breast All round the loony-o And said, dear baby, we'll both find rest Down by the green River wide and deep, all round the lonely you, It's there a both babe and a mother sleep.
8: Here are two pictures from my father's head I have kept them like secrets until now First, the Ulster Division at the Somme Going over the top with Fuck the Pope, no surrender A boy about to die, screaming Give him one for the Shanko." Wilder than Gurkha's were my father's words Of admiration and bewilderment Next comes the London Scottish Padre resettling kilts with his swagger stick, with a stylish backhand and a prayer. Over a landscape of dead buttocks, my father followed him for fifty years. At last, a belated casualty, he said, led traces flaring till they hurt. I am dying for king and country, slowly. I touched his hand, his thin head I touched. Now, with military honors of a kind, with his badges, his medals like rainbows, his spinning compass, I bury beside him three teenage soldiers, bellies full of bullets and Irish beer, their flies undone. A packet of woodbines I throw in, a Lucifer, the sacred heart of Jesus, paralyzed as heavy guns put out, the nightlight in a nursery forever also a bus conductor's uniform. He collapsed beside his carpet slippers without a murmur, shot through the head by a shivering boy who wandered in before they could turn the television down or tidy away the supper dishes. To the children, to a bewildered wife, I think, sorry missus, was what he said.
2: Michael Longley, the Belfast poet. Uh, The North is a a poem um, which
8: compares uh, Ulster culture, if you like, uh, with Eskimo culture. Uh, The North stands for the the frozen wastes of um, the Arctic and, of course, for the north of Ireland. There are no landmarks round here, only immeasurable shifts of the snow... Frozen eddies to guide us home. Snow and ice turn us into Eskimos. We die walking in circles. Art is in miniature, carved on what can't be eaten.
0: This island of ours has too long been half free.
1: Six counties are under John to.
0: So I gave up my
2: boyhood
0: to drill and to train to play my own part in the Patriot game.
2: At the chapel door, morning and evening, the school bus slowed, easing through traffic lights, a hated moment forcing its ritual. Tense to the possibility of backseat eyes, I cupped a shoulder, head ducked to the pane, scrawled a tight blessing on my blazer front. Worse sin of all, that hidden cringe, disowned in the heart's silence. Remembering it, I run from cover, Fling my first stone.
3: The majority have never had their civil rights. I love it, God-fearing, God-chosen, purest little Puritan, that for all your wiles and smiles you are, the dank churches, the empty streets, the shipyard silence, the tide upswings, and shelter your cold heart from the heat of the world, from woman inquisition, from the bright eyes of children. Yes, you could wear black, drink water, nourish a fierce zeal with locusts and wild honey, and not feel called upon to understand and forgive, but only to speak with a bleak aflatus, and love the January rains when they darken the dark doors and sink hard into the Antrim hills, the bog meadows, the heaped graves of your fathers. Bury that red bandana and stick, that banjo. this is your country. Close one eye and be king. Your people await you their heavy washing flaps for you in the housing estates ah credulous people God you could do it God help you stand on a corner stiff with rhetoric promising nothing under
2: the sun W.R. Rogers once sort of Belfast as where orange and green play hardy knuckles on all the gable walls a recent painting of George Campbell's is called A Belfast Wall what is it? It's just like a scorebook, isn't it? I mean, this is the scorebook. I mean,
7: all the things that, that it appears to me that have been unnecessarily tragic events and stupid things uh, would seem to me to to be written on this wall somewhere along the line. You know, the the um, the, the very immovability of that wall to, uh, to begin with. As I say, it's just kind of a scorecard, isn't it? Over kept over a period of fifty years, everybody has written his latest score down on it somewhere or other in terms of. Tragedy, humour, frustration, bitterness, if you like. Um, And, of course, always in the background, those old factories and those old chimneys. I mean, they really are, to me, basically the cause of the whole thing, the economic cause of it.
2: Why do people in Belfast paint on walls so much? I sometimes
7: think it's because there's so many damn bricks in Belfast. There's so so much ugliness in terms of brick that uh, maybe they're trying to obliterate them somewhere along the line or give them some meaning or some rhythm or some colour. From the painted point of view, there's always this um, searching around, fumbling about for a, a, an image to get far Belfast, because if you start to paint it uh, from memory or um, from your own temperament point of view, you'll end up with a social comment. Uh, if you paint it just purely visually, try to abstract it in some way, you'll end up with just, a, I think, a, a rather tired piece of cubism, which, which doesn't satis- satisfy me at all, you know.
1: Red brick in the suburbs, white horse on the wall, Italian marbles in the city hall. O stranger from England, why stand so aghast? May the Lord in his mercy be kind to Belfast.
4: Yes, well, I was uh, playing a part in a film for Walt Disney in Hollywood, and uh, they built this Irish village on the back lot, which is almost, you know, a little part of semi-desert in Burbank. And I was um, sort of thinking over my few lines I was going to say, and uh, a voice came from behind me and said to me, how are you Mr Devlin? And I looked around and I said to me, you a bit fast, man? He said, I am, and you're a hell of a bloody distance from the Governor Road.
1: This jewel that houses our hopes and our fears was knocked up from the swamps in the last hundred years. But the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. May the Lord, in his mercy, be kind to Belfast.
5: There are some kind of uh, myths. For example, there's a very interesting little book uh, called Walks Among the Poor of Belfast, which was published, uh, republished last year by a man called O'Hanlon. And he talks about the people of Sandy Row believing that on Cave Hill, the Danes had, many centuries ago, buried their loot of gold. And if you could get the the seventh son of a seventh son at midnight on Midsummer's Day, and he took him to the top of the Cave Hill, he could locate this hoard of gold very easily. And didn't he record, O'Hanlon recorded, when he was in Belfast, how... They all believed this tale, and they did get the a man who was the seventh son of the seventh son, and they took him with torchlights to the top of the Cave Hill uh, one midsummer's night. But, they, of course, they didn't find any gold. It was fool's gold, you might say.
1: We swore by King William there'd never be seen an all-Irish Parliament in College Green, so at Stormont we're nailing the flag to the mast. May the Lord, in his mercy, be kind to Belfast.
4: Yeah, I was drinking with some friends in the well-known tavern in London called the Salisbury, managed incidentally by a Waterford man, Joe Hannigan and his wife from Galway. And it was a great meeting place for actors and so on, Peter O'Toole, Dickie Burton, all these people all drank in this pub. But one night I was there and there were a couple of cherry men in the, in the bar. And um, there was a chap come up to me and he said to me, Mr. Devlin, can I buy you a drink? And I said to him, well, you're a Belfast man, and he I said, yeah. And he mentioned the street off the Shankle Road. So I said, all oh, right, we'll have a drink together. Whereupon these two carrymen men um, heard us talking, and one of them said to me, said to the two of us, as a matter of fact, um, you think you would you consider yourself Irish, people in the north? I said, of course you would. And I wasn't sure, you see, whether he spoke Gaelic or not, but I said to him in Gaelic, na which means, for the benefit of the people down south who don't speak Irish, that the people in Belfast are as Irish as the boy in water.
1: over oh, the bricks, they will bleed, and the rain it will weep, and the damp leg and fog lull the city to sleep. To hell with the future and live on the past May the Lord in his mercy Be kind to Belfast
2: Falls Road and Shankle Road Ben Burb Street And Boyne Square Burn Tollet Way And Crocus Street Hawthorne Street and Hart Street, William Square and James Street, Union Place and Dublin Road, Adams Street and St Jude's Crescent.
3: Walking among my own this windy morning in a tide of sunlight between shower and shower, I resume my old conspiracy with the wet stone and the unwielding images of the squinting heart. Once more, as before, I remember not to forget. There is a perverse pride in being on the side of the fallen angels and refusing to get up. We could all be saved by keeping an eye on the hill at the top of every street, for there it is, eternally, if irrelevantly, visible. But yield instead to the humorous formulae, the spurious mystery in the knowing nod. Or we keep sullen silence in light and shade, rehearsing our astute salvations under the cold gaze of a sanctimonious God. One part of my mind must learn to know its place. The things that happen in the kitchen houses and echoing back streets of this desperate city should engage more than my casual interest exact more interest than my casual pity.
0: And the wicked fairy cast a spell, cast a spell, cast a spell And the wicked fairy cast a spell a long time ago Fair Rose has slept for a hundred years, a hundred years, a hundred years Yeah, 100...
2: today, I saw a swan drift derelict on the lagon, come ashore to a retinue of bottles, wire, a rainbow of petrol, knowing each wounding sunset now, each swollen dawn, a retracing
6: page.